My name is Chess, and on my show, Plus 7 Intelligence, we talk about how games impact people. Listen to a mental health counselor explain how he prescribes games for his clients, or how a game designer takes inspiration from games to launch her tech startup. Listen to Plus 7 Intelligence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are now entering the Podglomerate. When people ask me, what kind of fiction do you write? My answer is, the kind that is no kind. Hey Jeff, guess what? What's going on, buddy? We're recording Writers Who Don't Write and I'm not tired. I am not tired. I've been told I pronounce that word weird. Tired. Also, I got engaged. Hooray! In between this episode and the last episode, everyone, this is Writers Who Don't Write. I'm Kyle. I'm Jeff. And I'm engaged. Kyle is engaged. I'm going to let him get away with talking about being tired, even though it's in the context of him saying that he's not tired. It's kind of the underlying theme of all of this. Exhaustion. Well, congrats, man. You and Kelly are like my mom and dad. You're the the rocks in my life, the bastions to my saneness. (laughs) We are your spirit uh, parents. Yes, and I, I could not be happier. I can't wait for that wedding. That's great. Go clean your room. All right. Who do you have on the show this week? Claire Massoud, who's the author most recently of a book called The Burning Girl, which is kind of a coming-of-age story of two girls in a small town in, in, in Massachusetts outside of Boston, but it's a lot more than that, and she gets into why during the interview, um, but it was really good. It's all people were talking about. We interviewed her the day after it was published, I think, so it, which was a few weeks ago. Um, so it's a little bit dated, but you guys will get a lot out of this, I think. Uh, is it is that dated in the publishing world? Is two weeks really all it takes? I'm just realizing that we are doing interviews with everybody the day that their books come out or their podcasts, and then we're not releasing it for like two weeks. So to me, it seems dated because I remember being so excited about getting the interview, and then it's like two weeks or a month before I actually edit the thing. So Claire actually doesn't use social media really at all. So it was kind of interesting because her book is about two girls coming of age. It's they're like middle schoolers in the social media world. And it was really fun to, to read what she was writing about, you know, how they were using their cell phones and interacting online, because it was a perspective that, that me as, as a male in his 20s doesn't usually get to see. So it was, uh, it was really, really cool. Welcome to the show, Claire. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, you know, we we have, uh, you in particular have, have come up in my life a lot. Uh, you know, I've been working in some form or another in the book world since the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And your name is just ever present. Uh, I was working at a bookstore in New Hampshire when The Emperor's Children came out. And, uh, you know, I couldn't go a day without having somebody ask me about that book. We had display cases in the window. Uh, it, it was it was really you know kind of funny because I remember looking at the jacket even years later, and and it just like brings back this wave of nausea because it was like the one book that we could never. <laughs> it was just the one book we could never keep in stock. So, uh, 
you know, I wanted to ask you about, um, very generally about your career and, you know, how you got to where you are today. Cause you have a new book that came out, uh, as of this recording, I think it was yesterday. That's right. That's right. A, a book. Yeah. A new novel just as of yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, it's funny, uh, the emperor's children, a lot of people, a lot of people that I meet now sort of, what is it? 11 years later will say, Oh, I loved your book. And I know which one they mean, because um, <laughs> it's really, I, you know, for, for a long time, I, I think uh, most people who read my books were my blood relations um, or my mother's friends. She would get cross if they didn't. Um, That's a good so, mom. <laughs> a good mom, yeah. <laughs> and um, so, but, but, but in fact, you know, it was my one, two, three, fourth book, right? It was my fourth book, uh, The Emperor's Children, even though many people think it, it that's where i started um and and i've written uh you know this new one is my second novel since then so my sixth book um and and i i had a a very i guess what you'd call old fashioned sort of beginning that uh that i wonder if you know i often think if i were starting out now how would that be uh i i was living in england um, I, my husband, James Wood, uh, is British. And so I had gone to study there. That's for graduate school. That's where we met. And I, I came back and I went to a writing program and was a dropout. I dropped out to go back to London to be with him. And I was, that's where I finished my first novel and it was first published there. And it was published here after that. And it was published there by Granta Books. And Granta Books is a uh, was a, then a fairly new uh, sort of side project for the magazine, Granta Magazine. Now, I, you know, now it's a very established publisher over there, but at the time it was new. And, uh, and here, Granta, nobody would publish it here. And, uh, and Granta is, is, was at the time owned by uh, a man named Ray Hederman, who owns the New York Review of Books. And in the way of a, an old-fashioned patron, he just decided to, to publish a few Granta books in the United States as a pilot project to see how it went. And so my first novel is one I think of three or four books ever published by Granta Books in the United States because they didn't pursue it after that pilot project. And the other books were The Granta Book of the Family and Ivan Klima's Spirit of Prague. And... Um, and me, I, I mean, I think that may be it. And, um, and you know, it, it, was a, it was a fairly sort of homespun uh, operation, very shoestring sort of operation. I think my advance for the U.S. rights was $500. Um, and, and that, you know, that was my first American publication. And I remember with my second book, uh, The Last Life, which was published a, a few years later, uh, it was reviewed in the New York Times, and and Kakatani said in a sort of it, what what seemed to me slightly irritated way, she said, "Masood's novel, her second, as it turns out, <laughs> because <laughs> because the first, you know, the first was sort of published in this almost sub rosa way, um, and but but after that, so I published I published my second novel, The Last Life, um, and then I published the, a book of novellas, which came out. 
uh, literally, I think the week of 9-11 or the week, Oof. it was either the week before or the week after. So you can imagine how much attention people were paying to a book of novellas. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and then, and then it was really with the emperor's children that, that, uh, you know, you, it, it, it sort of, I was never in a bookstore where, where people were buying the book. Um, I did sit next to a woman on the plane once, you know, we got chatting and I'd said, she's, you know, I said I'd written a book and then she said, Oh, we read that in my book club. And, and, and she seemed sort of vague, <laughs> vague and kind of not that interested. And, um, so, so it was both an exciting and also oddly humbling <laughs> experience because she read it and clearly it had made no, no impression whatsoever. Well, so I'm, I'm curious because you are, you know, it, it sounds like that was, you know, a very humble experience, but also, you know, you're the kind of writer that gets New York Times profiles and you're married to, you know, a uh, New Yorker book critic and, uh, you know, as, as small as the grant a pilot program must have been, it still was a pretty big deal at the time, uh, you know, or at the very least, like it's part of the, the legend or the lore of the publishing world now. So, I mean, I'm curious how that feels to be an author with, with that kind of pedigree. Wow. Well, you know, it's funny when you, you put it like that, um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like that. <laughs> I mean, I think one of the things, I think one of the things that's, um, that, that's odd about life is that you, you know, you never feel your you're always in, you're sort of in your own experience and you always feel like you're the same person. And I remember somebody uh, saying to me, oh, well, of course, you're part of the literary establishment. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you're married to James Wood. And, you know, that makes it easy for you in the literary world. And I, and I said, you know, I met James on the eve of my 21st birthday and we were students at university he wasn't a he wasn't a sort of critic for the New Yorker. He was just a guy, you know, with an ink stain on his pants. Like he was just a guy, and and so it, most of life just feels like that, you know. And it's true when I step back and and look, I I think how amazingly fortunate I've been. And you know, when I talk about um, wondering about how it would be now, you know, the, being in being in Britain, I think was actually made made being published in some ways much easier for me than it would have been here and i say that just because even then which is now a long time ago when you you know you'd write letters to people in publishing here looking for work or for just some sort of informational interview and it was like dropping the letter down a well you just never heard anything back and when i got to london where i knew nobody and i wrote to sort of 15 publishers probably five of them wrote back and said, I don't have a job for you, but come and meet and let's chat. And, you know, I'll tell you what publishing's like. And, and in that way, in the first months that I was in London, I, after, after dropping out of my writing program, in the first months I was in London, I, I had these really amazing conversations with these very generous editors who, who are now, you know, who are now the senior, they were then young editors and they're now the senior people in, in publishing and and it, there was just an openness in that because I guess the society was small you know I do want to go back to that time uh, maybe even before you dropped out of the writing program 
and talk a little bit about when you knew you wanted to be a writer and more specifically when you knew you wanted to write novels. And let me let me also got... interrupt and just say that uh, <laughs> this writing program was in Syracuse, which is where Kyle grew up. So. Oh, you grew up in Syracuse. Well, I if am I from the south side, yeah. if I tell you that I lived in Jefferson Tower, do you know which oh, yeah. one that is? Yeah, it's one of I a, do. there are three large towers right by the highway on the city side, not the university side. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my brother is a fireman, and one of his first stations was uh, routinely called to Jefferson Tower. <laughs> for all the college age shenanigans that happen that's really funny <laughs> in that world yeah, yeah yeah it's a it's a small world that so, that um, is yeah wow. well it it's um and and you know it that's 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 a story in itself you know the whole the whole story of the Syracuse uh writing program of which I you know had only the briefest of glimpses but that's an amazing history and story you know all on its own I I it, you know, I remember going to get this, going in London to uh, a memorial service for, I mean, an open to the public memorial service for sort of literary reading for Raymond Carver that all sorts of people read at, including, uh, including sort of Richard Ford and, you know, I don't know if Toby Wolf was there, but a whole bunch of people and, uh, and Salman Rushdie. And that was his last public ex- appearance before the fatwa the fatwa was against him was issued the next morning anyway huh. and then wow. i went off, yeah and then i went off to syracuse which was of course where raymond carver had taught and mm-hmm. his his widow tess gallagher you know had still had the last deer he'd shot in the freezer wow yeah i mean Sy- syracuse has a, a great that history like syracuse. And, and my my mom is actually uh she grew up in duet which is one of the suburbs so I, I have a little bit of claim to syracuse but i mean they currently have mary carr george saunders it, it, it's a program that i i would love to join one day yeah no the, it's an amazing it, it has always been i mean when i was there it was toby wolf uh mm-hmm. who who was an amazing teacher and and very formidable and and a little scary you know um but but amazing and he he was sort of running the program uh a, a writer named doug unger was also teaching there stephen dobbins was there um hayden caruth the poet was there uh yeah an amazing well, program i i kyle do you mind if i hijack the question for a second <laughs> go on <laughs> <laughs> well i i claire i want to ask you about uh place because I mean, your new book, your new novel, *The Burning Girl*, uh, takes place in Royston, Massachusetts. Which, to be honest, I don't know if that is a, a made-up town, but it, it's it res- made up. It is. <laughs> yeah, I thought so, but it resembles quite a few towns that you know I grew up near. I, I'm from New Hampshire. I'm actually recording this interview remotely from New Hampshire today. Wow. Uh, yeah, right outside of Portsmouth. I grew up in Exeter. Uh, you mentioned Portsmouth in the book. Uh, you're a, a professor at Cambridge. You did a little bit of school in London. You did a little bit at, at Syracuse. You spent some time in Australia, uh, DC, and, and I'm sure I'm missing half a dozen other outlets or uh, Toronto. areas. Toronto. Toronto. <laughs> uh, was, was Connecticut part of it too? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yep. So I'm, I'm just curious, like how, how location influences your writing. And then I promised we can go back to Kyle's question because I know I, I hijacked it a little bit, but it, it just seemed like it was too perfect not to. 
Right. No, of course. You know, and, and it's, it, it might seem funny given that I, I've bounced around a certain amount that, that, that I, I really actually care a ton about place. I mean, in, in fiction, I feel as though there's a beautiful Eudora Welty essay uh, called it called place in fiction um, in which she, uh, she, she says, you know, try to imagine the magic mountain set in Spain, right? Like you, you, that, that, that we are who we are because we are where we are when we are. Place is very important. And so when I'm writing fiction, I, I, I have to, I have to know where it's happening. And I, and as a teacher, you know, with my students, I'm always a little, uh, because some people want to set, set things in a sort of an unnamed town or, you know, a, an unknown country. And I was like, no, actually, even if you don't name it, it's a specific place in the same way that you would never say of a character, oh, she is between 23 and 26. Well, no, actually, she will know exactly how old she is. She's 24 and two months, you know. A place is always, um, is, is always specific. And, and with, with this, uh, with my new novel, which is set in, in Royston, it is actually um, very close to, to your, your New Hampshire uh, home. And, and if you had to find it on a map, it would be somewhere around where Georgetown is. Mm-hmm. My, my, my dad taught uh, high school there. Oh wow! Wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I, I, I kind of I gathered as much that it would be a little bit north of Boston. Um, I think you might have even mentioned that, but but yeah, I mean it's like I know I felt a certain way reading this because I could relate to a lot of the instances that you were talking about, and you know, the the old New England town and how it's small but large at the same time, and you kind of know everybody, but you also don't, and and I know that it's general enough that, that most of the readers could also feel some kind of relation to their own town. But I mean, it just struck me that you, you did that intentionally and I, I couldn't necessarily put my finger on why. Well, I, w- I want, you know, I wanted it to be both a sort of archetypal story and very specific. I mean, I, wa- I feel as though the experience, it's a, it's a novel about um, the friendship between two girls coming, sort of unraveling in adolescence. And I, that's a sort of, if not entirely universal experience, it's it's pretty common, but but each instance is is unique, right? In the same way that we're all we're all people, we're all the same in lots of ways, but each of us is unique, you know. So so um, so it, it for me, you know, when I settled on on the place, then I, I wanted there were certain elements that made made that fictional town make sense and. It was funny because my editor had, you know, she obviously had wonderful suggestions and questions, but one of them, she kept saying, why is the quarry private? I I don't understand why the quarry is private. I was like, really, I promise the quarry is private. Um, Because (laughs) because I had in in a specific sort of one specific, but other not, not, not near where Georgetown is, but a specific quarry in mind, you know, and, but also all through Massachusetts, there are a bunch of, you know, whether they're, they're, uh, whether they're run by trustees of the reservation, or you know, or whether they're by some land concert, local land conservation group, like they, they, there are, the, the land is generally private. So she finally, she, she let me have it. She let me keep, keep the privacy. You know, the fact that the quarry was private, but it didn't because she's not from here. It didn't make any sense to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a, as a native upstate New Yorker, I had no concept of what that meant. Right. Um, I'd never seen a private quarry before. 
Well, it's what? it's not. It's more so that they they don't want people to get hurt, and and I think you kind of intuited that from the uh, the uh, legend that the boy had died down there. Um, yeah, it's not and, private in the sense that they want to make money off it, or 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 even that they specifically want to keep people out. It, it yeah it yeah it's 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 as you're saying, it's, it's more um, a sort of management. They're sort of kind of just managing it in the most loose way. <laughs> and it's it's funny the the asylum is a, you know there's a few of those near me that uh, I mean not that close to me but you know these these real places get these urban myths and legends surrounding them and then they grow into these things that are much bigger than they were ever meant to be. Um, but anyway, I, I'm harping on something that i shouldn't be uh kyle over you have you. digressed i uh, have digressed no so the, what i was uh getting at earlier was one of the things that i always find interesting about the career of a writer is that moment when you start to turn the corner and realize that it's actually a real possibility to do this for a living and to actually pursue it as uh, uh, a career so i was wondering if we could go back to that time for you claire when you're you're in the writing program and you're or even maybe beforehand when you first decided that this was the path you were going to pursue and then maybe a little bit more about how you got from that decision to publishing your first novel. Right. So, um, you know, I, I feel that my answer is a little bit buggy. It's a little annoying. I was, <laughs> I was the child who, you know, at the age of five announced to the world that that's what I wanted to do. And my parents in fact gave me a little kid's typewriter for my sixth birthday. I, um, I think as soon as I understood that telling stories, making it, you know, I loved stories as a kid. I loved them. And, and I, when I was about five, I, I, some, I came to the realization that somebody made them up, right? They didn't, they didn't just exist mm-hmm. in the world since forever. Somebody made them up. You know, my, my, my parents must've told me, I must've asked and they must've told me that. And, and I immediately I said, you could, that's a thing you can do. That's what I want to do. I want to do that. <laughs> um, so it was, you know, it was, it was something that, that I never, I never, there was a brief moment around 13 when I wanted to be an actress as well, but, but basically, basically, right, right. Like two, <laughs> yeah. two very plausible careers. Um, but, but I, but basically I never, I never didn't want to, to do this, and then the big question was how how do you how do you live? And you know, I remember my father as I was going off to college saying, "Well, I, you need to take statistics and accounting." <laughs> you know, trying to give me some practical uh, some some practical direction, but of course, those classes were often at eight in the morning. It was just not going <laughs> to happen. <laughs> it was you know, it was not going to happen. So, um, and and really the thing of figuring out how to how to survive how to make a living that was the big question when I was finishing college that was the one thing I I I had no idea and again going to England in that sense was was really eye-opening because for such a small country at that time um, I mean always at the historically for a long time um, it, it had a huge uh, a huge amount of print journalism, just a ton mm-hmm. of newspapers, right? This is before the internet. It just had a ton of venues for 
for text. <laughs> they needed to fill up a lot of pages every day. There was just a lot of papers. There was, you know, the Times, the Independent, the Guardian, the Observer, the Sunday Times, the, you know, there, there were just the, the Daily Mail, the Daily Express, the, uh, the Evening Standard, you know, and on and on and on. And, and so to be a freelance journalist, it was a very poor living, but, but it was a living, you know, you could actually, um, you couldn't just do book reviews because they paid too badly. But, you, but, but if you cobbled together features and, and, uh, and book reviews and, you know, interviewing profiles, interviewing people, you could, you could make kind of a living. And that was um, a thrilling discovery. And, and then I came, when we came back to the United States, it wasn't really possible to make a living that way. And, and by then I, I had my first novel and, and, and I was te- from then on I was teaching adjunct. I, I taught first at College Park, Maryland, and then over the years at a whole bunch of places. Um, but, but it, you know, it, the cultures are different in that way. And, and teaching is a, is, is, provides that, you know, that sort of, tiny foot in the door to a living for so many writers. And then, you know, as you get older, actually, and get a full-time job, it provides a living. And you've made oh. your way to Harvard. I made my way to Harvard. It's true. <laughs> it's true. You know, I taught, for, I taught the last, I just started at Harvard a couple of years ago. And, but for a long time before that, I was teaching at, um, at Hunter College in New York in the mm-hmm. MFA program, which was, um, which was really wonderful. But we, we, we did always live, here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So, uh, so I ended up. I was essentially spending my entire income going yeah, back and forth. Yeah, yeah. So, and now, now you're with the wicked smart kids. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Now, now it's it's all. Um, yeah. What is that Matt, Matt Damon movie? Yep, I'm with all. Uh, Goodwill Hunting. Yes, exactly. I, <laughs> I thought this was a Harvard bar. You'd have equations <laughs> and, and shit on the oh, wall. God. You, uh, you've, but you've hit another di- point of digression. For I have. That's anyway, one of his yeah. you're good at that. You're yeah. good at that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's been practicing his entire life for this moment. <laughs> so you, you, uh, it is actually, um, kind of, I know you teach English there. Am I right? I teach creative writing. I teach okay. fiction, no. fiction workshop and, and oh. it's yeah, mostly undergraduates. And sometimes there are a few graduate students or sometimes staff or faculty, you know, but Mostly. I was hoping I was hoping that you would say that because uh, Juno Diaz, who's another of my favorite writers, is a creative writing teacher at MIT, and he has this line that he always goes back to, um, which I'm totally going to butcher, but um, you know, even the nerdiest of kids need to need to learn how to write. I think it is, um, and I know I totally uh-huh. butchered that, but uh, but what's that like? You know, I, I imagine that there's a lot of kids who go to Harvard, and uh, you know want to major in English or writing, but I imagine that there's a lot more who don't, but have to take the class because it's an elective or, or they don't, you know, the great thing about the creative, I mean, they do have to take some, you know, there's a distribution sort of requirement where they have to take a certain number of humanities courses, even, you know, courses in the humanities, even if they are um, really directed towards the sciences, for example, and vice versa. But creative writing is not required for anybody. So it, it is actually a fantastic, uh, it's, it's pretty great because they come, the students come only because they want to. Everybody who's there is there because they want to be there. And they come, yes, they're English majors, but there are 
you know, environmental studies majors and computer science majors and, um, you know, government majors and religion majors, you know, they, they come from all over the, the university and, um, and they have these really different experiences and, and they write about really different and diverse and fascinating things. I had, I had one student who was a computer science major. Um, and I, and, and I think, I don't know if it's happened very often, but his final story for me was also his final project for his computer science class on artificial intelligence. And it was a, it was a story about, uh, the interaction in a few, in a sort of dystopian future world and inter, you know, a sort of interaction between a, a human and a, and a, and a robot that, you know, much was at stake as it were. And, and, and from an artificial intelligence point of view, he had to, I think he had to write then a, a sort of analysis of the story that accompanied it when he submitted it to his professor in computer science. But, um, but for me, it was totally fascinating because of course it was on, in, in, it was sci-fi, but it also wasn't <laughs> because, you know, he was having, he was, he was actually having to tether his, his fiction to, to the pos you know, I guess the, I don't know if it's the current capabilities or the imminent capabilities of, of artificial intelligence. Wow. That's, that sounds incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, is, are there, I mean, I imagine that you have a lot of stories that are just as fascinating as that, but I'm curious if there's been any experiences as a teacher or as a professor that have been just like, you know, exceptionally rewarding when it comes to like the results of, of, of a student doing something that you didn't think he or she wanted to, or was capable of doing. You know, I, I think by, by now, cause I've been teaching such a long time. I mean, I first, my first class I think was 96. So that's a long time. Um, and, and I've had, I feel like I've had a bunch of different experiences of that kind. Um, sometimes sort of, you know, fairly swiftly, you know what I mean? That somebody just, um, maybe somebody, uh, ha it doesn't, I mean, I, I had a student a few years ago who she was very keen, but again, there was, she was writing fantasy and it was of a very different sort to the artificial intelligence. And, and, and it, it, it just, she was sort of struggling with specificity. I mean, I don't think she felt she was struggling, but I, as a reader felt she was struggling. And, and then she suddenly, the last story of the semester, she wrote this long story that I, I think, I don't know, but I, may have been based in some of her experience and was set not in, in an imagined world, but this one. And it was incredibly powerful and moving and full of really precise details and, and subtle characterization. And, um, and, and I, I couldn't have imagined that she would write that, um, given her first few submissions, you know, and it was really thrilling, but that's, you know, that's one example. But then there are times when people, uh, over, over years, you know, that, that somebody you taught five years ago or eight years ago, um, or, you know, I had, I had earlier this year, an email from, from a guy I taught at College Park, Maryland, um, in the, in the mid nineties when I first started. And 
he now lives in Philadelphia and he's, he's publishing, I think it's his second book of stories. And he sent it to me to read and they're wonderful, you know, and I, I hadn't kept track of him. I didn't know what he'd been doing for, for those 20 years. And, and he's been writing and he's a writing, he writes and teaches in, in, in Philadelphia. It was amazing. What was it like to get that book in the mail after so long? Oh, it was just thrilling. And also, you know, to, it, it was like, it was like when you, you know, well, maybe you're too young to have had this happen, but you, you see somebody's kids when they're, when they're very small and then you don't see them again for 20 years and they're grownups. Um, look, they, <laughs> but they still look like, you know, the little people that they were, it's just, they're big. And, and in reading, in reading this guy's stories, I could totally recognize the, the, the sort of sensibility and the sense of humor from 20 years ago. But, but of course, you know, the evolution is enormous and this, and the stories are fully realized and, and, you know, mature in this really great way. Did you mark it up and send it back to him? <laughs> no, I gave, I gave him a blur. <laughs> Was that was, was that something experience. that occurred in in the Burning Girl, or, or did I read that in in like a, an essay about you, where somebody you wrote a letter to somebody, and then they marked it up and sent it back? Oh, that's what my grandfather did when I was, you know, when we my French my father was French and and um, and we grew up all my, always in English speaking countries, so we you know they our parents were always laboriously trying to get us like French tutors or French lessons or. Um, eventually I went to a French school for a time, but, but when we wrote to our grandfather in France, obviously we wrote in French and, and he would, yes, he would correct with writing <laughs> and send them back, which, you know, did not encourage me to write in French. <laughs> I still have Surprise. a block. Yeah, yeah. Still have a block. Yep. Well, that's, I mean, still a pretty amazing story. So I, I, well, I wanted to, Kyle has a question for you that uh, is something that is you're, come... you're, trying, you're trying to drag this question out of me, Jeff? Yes, but it's something, I, the reason I mention it in, in, instead of him is that uh, this is something that has come up time and time again. Um, mm-hmm. So Kyle, I'll, I'll let you ask it. Sorry, this is an awful uh, segue. Well, it's it, the prompt specifically comes from uh, a New York Times article uh, that was written about your style of writing, and they mentioned that they were literary novels. Um, and Jeff mentioned again before, uh, while we were talking before you joined us, um, that you were one of the, I, I don't even know how to just, like preeminent literary writers around. And I, I, I was going to ask for clarification about that. Cause as someone who is not of the publishing world, uh, one of the uninitiated, I guess, I don't, I have trouble recognizing literary novels when I read them. And, you know, specifically after reading the burning girl, I thought it was a fantastic coming of age. Everything felt very, uh, relatable to me. I, I'm and glad. it's hard to, <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, that that essence of growing up and the friendships that turn into less than for seemingly no apparent reason. I mean, you put me right back in that seventh grade world again, but it's hard to look back at that and cat it. I just don't understand where the categorization of literary novels comes from. So I wondered if you had any opinions about that. You know, um, I, I think it's, it's, 
um, it's a funny thing. I feel like it's sort of a, a catch all in a weird way when people, uh, when people ask me, what kind of fiction do you write? My answer is the kind that is no kind. <laughs> and then often people say, Oh, you mean literary fiction? And I say, sure. Okay. <laughs> I mean, because, because you, it, it, it's, um, you know, obviously there are very literary writers who write genre fiction, right? There are li very literary, you know, Octavia Butler is a very literary sci-fi writer or, um, Elmore Leonard, you know, is a very literary sort of noir thriller as is John le Carré, right? Like it's not, it's not, um, it's not, it doesn't seem to me that saying, I feel like people use literary fiction in a sort of um, broad, vague way to cover a whole lot of territory. Uh, but, 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 and, and, and I think, you know, problematically, right? Because when you hear it, your, I mean, your reaction is, but I, but I like the book. <laughs> It's it's also it's like what does it what does it mean? It's literary. It's a it's a novel. Of course, it's it's. I, well, I just is, don't I is, don't know what to what I'm supposed to be hearing when I'm hearing literary fiction. This is a, a different avenue of an argument <laughs> that that we've gone over with several guests on the show. Uh, Dana Schwartz, Alana Massey, um, Louise O'Neill. Uh, and what did they all say? <laughs> well, it's, I mean, in, in that context, it was always, you know, a female can write literary fiction and it's considered chick lit. And if a male does it, then it's considered, um, you know, like great literary fiction. And, mm -hmm. and I think it's interesting in your case, because in that same New York Times article that Kyle's referencing, uh, I think the direct quote, which I have here is, Though the woman upstairs and the emperor's children were of a rare breed, literary novels that made the bestseller list. Masood's book, books have tended to attract less critical attention than others with that distinction, like those of Jonathan Franzen, Jennifer Egan, Donna Tartt, or Colson Whitehead. So, and then it goes on to say that the reason for this is perhaps uh, your preoccupation with precisely the stories that tend to be most invisible, those of unorthodox women in their relationships with one another. But the reason that I, I bring this up and that I wanted to talk about it is because, you know, you are one of those writers where you don't get put into the category of, of chiclet, which I think is a stupid category in the first place. But, but I mean, it is an argument that people have been having for a long time, and it's something that, like... Right. I mean, I, I, I you know, there's a, the, I feel as though one of the, one of the things that, um, that, that I think about often is the, and I don't know if culpability is, is too strong a word, but the role of the publishing industry, right. In, in, in the marketing of books. And I, I don't know if you remember some years ago, Meg Wolitzer wrote a, piece in the back of the New York Times book review about mm -hmm. cover choices and and yep. about how you know certain covers are chosen for her books or that you know that and that then somebody like Jeffrey Eugenides can write us a, a sort of domestic fiction and it doesn't get the same cover um, 
and it's certainly treatment for different people, different treatment for different people. And, 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 you know, I remember laughing uh, the, my last book, the woman upstairs is about, is about, you know, it has a, a sort of fairly um, grumpy protagonist who's, you know, who's, who, who goes, starts the book with this sort of really angry rant. And, and when it came time for the paperback, they sent me, um, they, the first image they sent me was like, the back of the you know the back of the head and neck and one arm of a sort of beautiful young girl lying on the grass <laughs> what you know that this is not like this is not in spirit or 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 affect or you know this in no way corresponds to the book and then there was a lot of oh 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 henrying back and forth and what they came up with was was sort of a photograph of bubbles blue bubbles like that was the most was the most sort of unplaceable it could be the cover for any book um but they literally didn't they it, it they were i think as marketers they were torn because they were thinking this will this is a, a book about women and friendship between women and it will it will be for women readers and if we put you know a certain kind of cover on it women won't be attracted to it so we want women to be attracted to it oh but she won't let us put you know this sort of photo of a woman on it so all right what what can we okay bubbles right <laughs> i mean it, it's and that's it that's you know just one silly little example but and the, and the cover was fine i mean I, it was it's it's inoffensive you know it's fine but 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 i think there, there's a a certain i mean i think there really is something you know in the same way that there are sort of um, certain types of, of romantic comedies at the movies, right? There are certain novels that really are chiclet. You know, they're mm -hmm. they're trying to be a sort of um, entertainment, a sort of escapist entertainment more than not that they're untrue to human nature, but you know, they want to make sure they have a happy ending, or they want to make sure that the girl gets the guy, or you know what I mean. They, they're those kinds of books are out there, but then there are a vast number of of sort of serious thoughtful, well-written, literary, right? Mm -hmm. Books by women about women that don't get, um, that don't get space or attention because they get sort of lumped off, um, yeah. with this other section of, you know, it's, 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 it's like girls night out at the, at the local bar. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it, it's very odd. I, I feel it also about, um, about YA, right? Which and I was thinking a lot about when writing my novel. I, I um, it, my novel, this new novel has has these teenage protagonists. And um, when I when I was young, there wasn't really YA. There was like The Outsiders by S. E. Hinton, and that was it. Um, and and really, you just read books. You just sort of read whatever came your way by the time you hit thirteen. And mm -hmm. and it's a wonderful thing that there are all these stories novels stories books about young people's lives now but we've also the publishing has also sort of at the same time relegated young people's lives to like a niche in the bookstore and sort of penned them off from the rest of the world as if as if at 16 or 17 um characters weren't fully real people with real lives but just yeah. oh that's for the kids it's like the kids table at the restaurant when when you had your interview with Scott Simon on uh, Weekend Edition, he the the question that really stuck out to me was um, this book isn't really YA, but it's also really tough to get adults to read about middle schoolers, 
And I, I really enjoyed your answer for that, um, which, again, I'll probably butcher because I don't have it written down. But um, I think, in essence, it was basically, uh, you know, this is a story about adolescence and growing up. And, you know, whoever wants to read it can read it. But it's not meant for any, like, one specific set of people. It's more of, like, an experiential book. Right. Well, that's my hope. And I, and I think, you know, in, in terms of this conversation about literary fiction, it's 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 a sort of double-edged sword because on the one hand like oh if, if it's if it's the what the people in marketing would tell you is oh if we sell it as literary fiction there are lots of readers who won't touch it mm-hmm. right because they don't they think that literary fiction is it's like homework it's unappealing it's not for them so so a woman writer is going to do better if we don't sell it that way um but but then there is this question of what what we as a society give respect to and what we um, give, you know, column inches in a newspaper to, or, you know, time, you know, what we give, make time for as a sort of cultural product. It's, it's, it's a very thorny, complicated issue. And I do feel, of course, I come back to it, but I feel like um, capitalism has, is, is deeply entangled there. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's what I, I feel that that feels much closer to what I was imagining, because like as when I whenever I hear people mention something in terms of literary fiction or calling a novel literary, it always feels like a nod to something that's slightly over my head. Like uh, it would be OK if someone saw you reading this book on the train because it's literary. Right. Right. In, uh, yeah. You know, they, they in, in England, they put um, they, they put out Harry Potter with different covers so that like they had the grown-up cover so that if you were grown up reading Harry <laughs> Potter, you could hide on the train and <laughs> look like you were reading something else. Yeah. It's, uh, um, but, yeah. No, we, I was going to say that's what's, that's what's always bothered me about it is that I feel like it's a nod to something that I don't fully understand. And maybe I'm not meant to. Lee, Lee Child calls uh, the writing of people like him and John Grisham, I think popular fiction. And, you know, whenever he gets a question about literary fiction, he just says, uh, yeah, whatever, call my book, whatever you want, you know, like, I'm not ashamed that people want to read it. So. See, yeah, see, I mean, I think that just, there is one element of the, of, of the sort of literary thing that, that, that I, I would just throw out. I mean, it, I think it is, um, I think the, the notion of literary fiction is in many ways sort of old fashioned or outdated. It, 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 it it, um, you know, as, as, as I was saying earlier, there are literary writers in all genres. Um, but at the same time, what I mean, what I mean when I say somebody's a literary writer, I think there is, it is about intention, right? There is some level of, of um, intention beyond entertainment. I, I, I think, you know, you can separate out books in the same way that there, there, there are movies that are just really, like, despicable me, right? It's just really for fun. Like, it's really just for that, you know? It just really Despicable is. me is a many-layered masterpiece. <laughs> it's just... Of satire and criticism. Yes, well, okay. Um, no, no. Yeah, no, maybe... <laughs> I feel like some student somewhere is writing that essay, right? But, but, um, but, but, but some things are just for entertainment, and other things are, 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 you know, if we think in film are like 
far into the realm of artistic exploration and sort of difficult to watch. And then there are things that are in the middle that sometimes, you know, that are, are both ambitious artistically and are, and are entertaining. So, you know, if you, you know, there, there's a whole, um, vast realm of movies like that, you know, Taxi Driver or, or, you know, I don't know, the 400 blows, or uh, I'm trying to think of, of uh, for some reason, it's all old films that are coming, but you know, um, Robocop, right. I mean, there are things that, that are saying something bigger than themselves or attempting mm-hmm, something yeah. bigger than themselves and aren't just, and aren't just, um, about, about diverting attention. You know, I would, I, I would, I, 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 think, I yeah. I think the big issue there comes when, you know, the author, the creator of that meat of that piece of art, you know, has a different intention than what other people view it as. Right. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, so. of course. And, and well, again, capitalism. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and I mean, I guess intention is the, the root of all evil with everything. You know, I'm sure Donald Trump does not think that he intends to, to do everything that he does, but, um, Anyway, that was a. It, this oh is yeah. 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 Another, we. I feel we could have a good hour or two on yeah. that. We don't. Yes. <laughs> yes. Better, we could, <laughs> better not well, to go so, there. Yeah. 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 Well, so I I wanted to to chat a little bit about the Burning Girl, um, and I want to want to do so without giving away uh, any of the plot because there are some some reveals that that occur throughout the story, um, but I will say that everybody should go pick up the book. Uh, it was a, a fairly quick read and it was, it was really good. Um, so I guess my question and, and I, Kyle and I were texting about this last night, but, um, is this a book like written for girls and women or, or simply something told from a female perspective? Uh, because the story, and I'll let you give a quick summary of it, but, uh, you know, when I, when I hear people talk about the catcher in the rye, you know, that's a story like presumably for everyone. But then when you read, you know, Little Woman or, or uh, um, Laura, Ing- anything by Laura Ingalls Wilder or, or Jane Austen, like those are typically looked at books, looked at as books like for women. But I don't know, maybe Jeff, I'm, maybe I'm crazy. you're talking yourself into a See? corner here. I, I'm, See, no, you know, and I'm sure in, I'm, in the same, in the same <laughs> breath. And, and I right here, and this is why I, I wanted to ask you because I don't think I'm right, but I mean, that is the perspective you know, that a lot of people have. Right. And you know who those people are? <laughs> those who people are, are men. Yes. You know, here's the thing. It's, it's, it's a known, it's a known um, thing. There have been studies that girl children will happily read stories with boy protagonists and the inverse is not true so so um you know the reason harry potter is harry potter and not harriet potter even though the author is a woman is because she knew that if she wanted all children to enjoy her book she needed to make him harry now you can have a group where the where there are both boys and girls in your story, you know, there are lots of those lemony snicket, whatever. There are lots of sort of boy girl groups, but you can't not have a boy. If you don't have a boy, the boys won't read it. So, so we all grow up assuming that Catcher in the Rye is for everyone and Pride and Prejudice is for women. 
And, but, and to be clear, I read both and I loved both. Um, of course, but it, <laughs> but it's like that's actually that's actually a, a sort of underlying cultural bias yes. that yeah. we internalize very early. Like boys, it's not like boys are born knowing that they shouldn't read uh, stories with girls in them. But by the time they're five, right, without somebody actually telling them, don't read the ones with the girls in, most boys have just sort of absorbed that fact from the world around them. So that says something pretty profound about, you know, the 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 innate innate messages and biases of our culture. So, you know, do did I write the Burning Girl only for women? Of course not. Um, it's about humans and it's about friendships and it's about a time of life, you know, and experiences that everybody goes through. But it but it is about particularly girls, two girls at having that experience. And, and, and I, I feel it's, you know, I, even as I wrote it, I was aware that it's more likely to have more women readers than men readers. Um, but you know, the, 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 there's a, there's a wonderful, just, if you, if you, if you like, you know, that, that reading about that age, um, David Mitchell, who wrote, uh, Cloud Atlas. Do you, do you see who he is? Mm-hmm. And he, um, his book, Black Swan Green, is, which I think was his second novel, and is is about a, a sort of teenage boy in growing up in suburbia. And it it it's basically um, it's absolutely hilarious. It's very painful. Um, it brings it all back. And you know, it it isn't um, it isn't in some ways, I mean, it's, it's a comic, it's a, it's a funny novel. Um, but, it, but it, in the material that it's covering or the, the, the period of life or the, and, and the types of things, it's not any different from this. It just happens to be, um, happens to be about boys and the friendships between boys. My, my guess would be that that, that novel probably has more male readers than female, but I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, uh, even even books like um sorry i was going to give a really bad example but um oh go on <laughs> i was going to say the the Where the Knicks by nathan hill has is a like a male friendship of coming of age kind of story but there's also a lot of other pieces involved in that story um but no i mean i i it was really interesting to me because this is t- probably not a book that I would have picked up off the shelf, but when I saw your name, I knew I wanted to read it. And it, probably because of a lot of the same internalizations that you were just ta- like chatting about. And I don't know, it, it's, it's just something that kind of stuck out to me. And I, I'm, I don't really have a question or a point to make, but you know, well, it's something that, that I noticed. Well, I, I would just, I would just interject and I'd say, you know, it isn't, I was struck and I was struck that, um, you know, Dwight Garner reviewed it in the New York times and, and he said, this is a common, he did, he, he dismissed it. He said, this Mm -hmm. is a common book by an uncommon writer. I was going to ask you that. mm -hmm. And, you know, um, I feel that he, this is a book where I was trying to do, I think I, in, in my note to you, I, I explained, I was trying to do something quite complicated, which is to have a story that works on the level of being, a really straightforward, simple story about the friendship between two girls that is also um, that is also asking questions about how much we know each other, how much we invent in our in our understanding of ourselves, in our stories of, of other people, um, and 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 how much as a as a how much those stories are 
are influenced by our culture, the stories that, that, that we hear on the news, by the, by the narratives that circulate in the classroom or in a school, um, and you know, the, just the ways in which we sort of fictionalize our lives the whole time. So for me, it's a book about that as well as a, on another, you know, that's a sort of, um, if you will, more literary level. And, it, and, and my hope was that it, it's a book you can read, either just read in a sort of straightforward, visceral way, um, or that you can read it uh, with that with that sort of other level, you know, with that other that you can sort of find these other things and these other questions raised mm -hmm. in the story. And um, he he, it, I thought I, I I came away reading his review. I thought he did not have the slightest intimation of that entire realm of the book. He he read it as. As as if he he saw the topic, he thought, I know what this story is, which is what which is what my book is saying people do. I know how this story goes. I don't need to pay attention because I already know it. And that was and that and then he had the experience he expected to have, right? Mm -hmm. And and I feel like it's yeah. actually sort of fascinating to me. I, I, you know, it's it suggests perhaps haste. Who knows? Or 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 indifference. You know, but I feel like he didn't even give me the credit of imagining that I was trying to do something, right? He didn't, he didn't say, well, I don't get it. What is it she's trying to do? He just, he said, oh, story about two teenage girls, been there, done that. <laughs> it's so I, I interesting. one of the most, you know, it's, but it's just, it's, it's quite interesting because I, you know, I, I, I don't think that's a necessary, I don't think that's necessarily something that divides by gender, right? I don't think, that 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 that's something that he, it was his experience because he was male. I think it was his experience because he he precisely looked and thought, I know what this is going to be. I can't. I really can't be doing with this. Well, let me ask you a question then about the writing style because you mentioned that it was intentional that you've layered it this way, and that was something that I f I found to be very interesting, um, and just in terms of how you'd go about it as a process. Uh, after reading that review, do you wonder, like, in terms of when you're actually sitting down and writing a book like that, and you have that intention to make it layered, to make it accessible on more than one level, if you so choose, how do you decide how big the breadcrumbs are on the trail to that next layer? Like, how, how are you going about building that from a technical standpoint? When you want somebody to be able to look a little deeper, what sort of things, what sort of opportunities are you trying to give them? Um, you know, there are lots of different things. It's the, it's, it, I mean, what I would say to somebody, you know, who has the response that, that Dwight Garner did um, is read it again, right? Now that you've read it to the end, read it again. Um, and, and that maybe is a difference between, the literary book and the non-literary book is that it's a book that's designed to be read and you read it again and you have a different experience and you read it a third time and you have a different experience. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's meant, it's meant, you know, it's meant to have a longer, a longer, uh, life, if you will. That's not to say that it will for most readers, but, but, you know, the crumbs are in there. And if you get to the, if you get to the end and you think, Maybe there was something, and then you go back. You will then find all the crumbs. You you can't have some, you can't have 
as a writer, you can't have something that is like, here's a red flag flagging a small crumb. You know, you, you just, you put them there and then it's for people to find them. And, 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 and I think um, that's something that happens over time. It isn't something um, necessarily that happens for every for everybody in the first time they read the book. That said, you know, I've had I've had some I've had readers who in the first read of the book, you know, come back and say to me all the talk to me about all the things that I feel, you know, were the crumbs. So mm-hmm. Well it's it's interesting because I uh when I was reading it, like I I did have, I mean, I should read it again based on, based on what you just said and, you know, have that different experience. Like, and I'm not saying that I didn't pick up on the crumbs because I certainly did, but you know, I'm sure I missed some of them. Um, but I mean, what I'm trying to say really is that like, there's a lot of subtext in this particular novel where like you read the story and you know that there's a lot more going on beneath the surface. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is that in a lot of the reviews I read, it said that there is, you know, Julia might be an unreliable narrator. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering why people were saying that specifically. Um, and one of the, the thoughts that I had was that a lot of the, the key information in the story came through, you know, a tertiary character. Uh, you know, it was a lot of, he said, she said, um, and then, you know, we pick up on that from, from Julia's point of view. But I'm, I'm curious, is that, is that a piece of why people were saying that she's a, an unreliable narrator, narrator, or am I missing something big? I, th- I think, you know, unreliable can mean a lot of things. It can, um, she's certainly not an unreliable narrator in the sense that if she tells you, she's not the way our president the president is an unreliable narrator and says it, it stopped raining for my inauguration when we can actually see the rain falling on people. She's not, she's not unreliable. She's not unreliable in that way. Um, she, she, but she's, she's subjective. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's part of what, part of what I'm trying to write about is the way um, all stories are subjective and partial. And, and um, I think, you know, as a writer, I'm I I I am I have a a principled commitment to human truth, right? And part of that is a is a is a commitment to a certain type of openness when I write. It is not for me to tell you what to think. It you know it's the Chekhov line about the horse thieves, right? You've heard it before. It's it's not for me to tell you that horse thieves are bad people. It's for me to tell you what this horse thief is like. So so. I just lay it out there as as truthfully and accurately as I can, right? When these people are for me in my head, real and rounded and and fully present, but with the limitations of that each of them, you know, will have. And I am not telling you um, that you know Cassie is a bad person or her her mother's boyfriend is a terrible person or um, this is what happened. Julia doesn't know what happens in a lot of, in a, for a lot of the novel. She, she at some points fills in things that she doesn't know. Um, by the time you get to the third section, she is recounting to the reader as if she had been there, a story she only heard third hand, right? So, so there's a significant amount of embroidery and I wanted the reader to, to alternate between thinking, oh, we're just in a third person narrative now 
And then having the realization, wait a minute, this is actually being told by Julia, and how would she know? Well, she she has presumed so upon upon her intimacy with, with Cassie, she feels she knows her so well that she's telling the story as if she were there. And obviously that's an extreme a sort of extreme narrative strategy, but it's but it's for a purpose. It's it's to highlight that that's something that each of us does routinely all the time. When when we say, you know, well she was I she was just really sad when when her her boyfriend broke up with her, and yeah. that's why she put on all that weight. She put on all that weight because she was sad. It's like, well, no, maybe she put on that all that weight because I don't know because she was learning to cook puff pastries and and <laughs> just got really into puff you know what I mean like we yeah. we make up a story all the time and it's always from partial information and it's it, and it always runs the risk of being untrue yeah and i think you you highlight that like really well when uh all of her classmates are assuming that they know what happened at the end well and and that you know that too is that again back to the like they all know how this story goes like we know how this one goes you know when mm-hmm. a girl turns bad we know how it goes but 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 in that sense, I think, you know, people are saying she's unreliable because as readers, we often just want to be told. We want to be told what happened. And and people do not like people do not like not knowing for sure. It's a yeah. very uncomfortable place to be. <laughs> I thought one of the most one of the most striking uh, themes that you drove home right up until the end of the book was the realization that internally we're all essentially unknowable to each other and that like to have that side by side with the the sort of growing pains of the the seventh to ninth grade um social experience was it it put me back in that time and place and breadcrumbs or not i thought it was i thought it was well done oh thank you thank you so that was that was my i think that was my favorite part oh thanks (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say, you know, I I do think that 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 in some way we whether conscious whether fully consciously or not, that's a realization that we come to in adolescence that we don't feel as kids. Yeah, and especially in that moment when you realize for the first time uh, that your parents don't actually know everything, and when they say everything's going to be okay, they have no idea. Right. Yeah, they're (laughs) just people. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I would like to keep you forever because this is a fascinating conversation, but but we've already allotted our time, so I don't want to, you know, keep you too late on a weeknight, but uh where can our reader or our listeners find you online? Uh side note, you don't run any of your own social media, is that correct? I don't, but there's a Facebook page. Um <laughs> I have a Facebook page or the publishers have one for me, and I believe they have there is now a website. Yep. I, there is. I, there yep. is. Do you happen is to know Claire, what it's called? <laughs> uh, I think it's clairemasood.com. Yes, it is. Yep. So it's well, clairemasood.com. Uh, you can find her Facebook page, and uh, there's all kinds of uh, fun uh, Claire Masood coverage and such on the WW Norton Twitter account. Um, and we will put all of the other relevant info into the outro. But thank you so much, Claire, for joining us. This was a real treat. Oh, thank you, Jeff and Kyle, both. It's really been wonderful. What a treat to talk to you. Thank you very much. So that was Claire Masood. 
thanks to Claire for being a part of the show this week. Uh, you can find her online at clairemassoud.com. That's M-E-S-S-U-D. Uh, she has a really robust tour schedule, which you can find on the website. She's speaking in like 10 different cities all the way through January. Uh, go check her out. Pick up the book. Read it. Love it. Uh, let us know what you think online at www.podcast on Twitter. Um, and then go to one of her events and tell her that you discovered her book through our show. Uh, that really helps us because her publisher has some really good authors that we want to book. Um, so make sure that she tells her publisher. Uh, you can find us online at www.podcast.com. Um, we are also on all of the podcast apps, Spotify, Apple uh, Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spoke, whatever. We're all we're on all of them. The music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the hour is from Ryan Dan of Holland Patton Public Library. You can find him online at hollandpattonpubliclibrary.com. And the little bit of music that you heard right in the middle of the show is from Ben Sound, who you can find at bensound.com. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Uh, and we'll be back in two weeks with a, an episode with Doug Stanton, who just wrote a book, um, which was published this week, called The Odyssey of Echo Company, all about the Vietnam War and the people who were a part of it. So you should definitely check it out and then also watch this giant Ken Burns documentary that's coming out on PBS. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.